Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning. It's always very difficult to follow these guys because actually you want them to carry on talking, don't you? But uh, I have a go anyway. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. And uh, you've already picked up, we're slightly behind schedule. Yesterday we should have been on the message of Pentecost, but we didn't get there. That's where we're going this morning. We've been looking at this great day of Pentecost, this, this moment in history, this climactic moment, this moment when the tectonic plates move in God's purposes for this world. Up until this time from the calling of Abraham, the focus of the intention and the purpose of God is on the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And uh, it doesn't mean that God doesn't concern himself with the whole world. There are many promises and many predictions that one day the, that the doors will be thrown open to the world. But during the ministry of the Old Testament and into the ministry of Jesus, the focus is on Israel. And so the word of God is given and revealed to the people of Israel. And the covenants are given into Israel and the patriarchs are from Israel. And all of these blessings focus on the Old Testament people of God. But there was always this promise, always this moment when, when uh, Babel would be reversed and the doors would be thrown open. Jesus stands before his disciples in his resurrection power and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now remember that's in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is the gospel designed specifically for Jewish people. And yet at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says now the gospel is for the whole world. And then at the beginning of Acts, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost and the church is born and immediately it is driven out in mission and 3,000 people are converted. We are Pentecostals this morning, aren't we? Some of us say yes, some of us aren't too sure, some of us want to shoot me, but never mind. There's no such thing as a non-Pentecostal church. We are all this side of Pentecost, which means that as churches, our great desire and passion and need is to be involved in God's plan and purpose for this age, which is the proclamation of the gospel, to the ends of the earth. So Bangor Worldwide is right in line with God's purpose. And whether it's the Middle East in Iran or all those uh, stands that we're going to hear about this evening, or whether it's in South America or South Africa, or indeed whether it's across the road from where you live, the gospel is for the whole world. So that's the kind of context here. We're going to be looking at the sermon this morning that Peter preaches, the very first sermon of the church. Now to say a couple of things, uh, let me say a little bit about the, um, the, 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 the kind of uh, character of the sermon or the, um, the, the sort of structure of the sermon and then say a little bit about the contents before I read it so you can see where we're going. Uh, first of all, let me say this is a summary. Okay, I'm sure that Peter preached longer than this. Uh, what kind of world would we live in if a sermon only lasted for three minutes? That would be dreadful, wouldn't it? Say yes. <laughs> this is a summary. Okay, so, so I'm sure that Peter preached for much longer than this. Luke is giving us a summary. And the summary uh, tells us the heart of the sermon. As you look at it, look at the structure. Can I suggest that the sermon is a response 
to the questions that the people are asking, or indeed the questions that the people are thinking. There are two questions that are actually articulated. Look at verse 12. What does this mean? What's going on? What, what, what is this happening with all these people speaking in other languages? And the first part of the sermon answers that question. That's verse 14 down to verse 21. So question one, what does it mean? And Peter answers it. And then in between verse 21 and 22, Peter anticipates another question. It's not actually articulated, but like a good preacher, he anticipates the question that the people are asking. What does this mean? Uh, and, and what he's going to say is this is the moment when the Spirit has come. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is the beginning of the last days. Well, what's the question you, you would then ask? Why? Why has this happened? Why have we entered this period? Why has the Spirit been poured out? Why has Pentecost arrived? And the answer to that is given in verses 22 down to verse 36. It's all happened because of Jesus. The arrival of the Son of God, the, the coming of Christ in his power, his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Everything has changed because of Jesus. And then there's a third question, and this one is articulated, verse 37, brothers, what must we do? And he gives them the answer, two commands and two promises. So can you say the way in which the sermon works? It's an answer to three questions. What does it mean? Why has it happened? What must we do? For those of you who preach this morning, and indeed for those of you who don't, what does a good sermon look like? Well, there are three characteristics of this sermon that I would suggest you should mark out every time we preach. Number one, it is Bible-based. It is Bible-based. As you look through the sermon, there are 20, uh, something like 25 verses, and something like 12 of them are direct quotations from the Bible, and seven or eight of them are explanations. The sermon runs something like introduction, quotation, explanation, quotation, explanation, quotation, explanation, conclusion. In other words, it's the Bible that he's preaching. You know, we, we, we travel around and we hear all sorts of people preaching, and sometimes they preach all sorts of amazing things which are not in the Bible. The test of a good sermon is that it's based on the Bible. Do you not agree? I hope you do. You know, when a man really truly explains the Bible, he can say, thus says the Lord. This sermon is Bible-based on the day of Pentecost. Number two, it is Christ-centered. Whatever sermon we preach, it should always be about Jesus. If a sermon doesn't mention Jesus, it's not a Christian sermon. Okay, So it's Christ-centered. And number three, it is gospel-focused. Do you notice how many times he says, you, 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 and at the end, you must repent. You must call on the name of the Lord. This isn't a night exercise in teaching the Bible. He's passionate. This is street preaching. This is him kind of standing face-to-face -face with lost people and saying, you've got to be saved. I'm not just telling you like I'm reporting the weather. I'm telling you something that is of eternal significance. This is gospel-driven. Can I say to you, those of you men who preach sermons, whatever sermon you preach, there should always be a gospel appeal in it. Somewhere within the sermon. Within the, because if we're preaching anything from the Bible, we're preaching for a decision. We're preaching Christ. We're calling men and women to trust in the Saviour. Okay, so that's the introduction. Is that okay? Let's read the Bible. So verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. 
Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God, uh, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did, through him, uh, did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God... But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence." Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we're witnesses of the fact exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let Israel, Israel, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, this is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and powerful and authoritative. Speak to us now by the power of your word, in the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. I grew up in, in uh, Birmingham in a working-class home, and uh, amazingly, I, I got to study theology at Cambridge. 
I was converted at the age of 11 and went to a little evangelical church in in Birmingham. Uh, And the great thing about the church was that it taught me to trust in the Bible, to believe the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. And what the Bible says, God says. And and so I went off to Cambridge at the age of 18, rather naively, not realising that the theology course I was going to study would teach me something rather different from that. On the first night I arrived, they said to me, all the men who are studying theology, there's going to be a garden party. Now, I came from Birmingham, and I didn't know what a garden party said, so I said, what's a garden party? I was not as posh as I am now. What's a garden party? And they said, it's a party in a garden. All oh, right, okay. So, so I, I went to this garden party, and I, I'm sipping my, my lemonade, and this man comes across, and he says, well, you're studying theology? I said, yes. And he said, are you, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, and, and are you, which church are you going to go to? And I said, well, I'm going to go to uh, Eden Baptist Church. And he kind of took a step back, and he said, you're not an evangelical, are you? I said, yes. He said, oh. He said, you evangel- you're, you're quite nice, he said, but, but, but there's something strange about you. I said, yeah, what's that? You believe the Bible's true, don't you? Well, don't all Christians believe that? That's what, that was my response. And, and for the next three years, I was taught consistently by professor after professor after professor that, that the Bible is full of errors, it's full of mistakes, it contains the Word of God, and yet it's not the Word of God. Now let me say to you, having been through that for three years, having seen the results of that, having seen the, 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 the emptiness that it produces, having seen that the fact that it strips the gospel of any power, seeing the fact that it empties churches and destroys lives, I'm here to affirm to you today the Bible is the living Word of God, and it is authority and it is absolutely true. As Christians, we believe five things about God's Word. Here you go. Number one, we believe in the necessity of God's Word. We need God's Word because if we don't have God's Word, we don't have the Gospel. Why does the devil hate the Bible so much? Why does he attack the Bible? If he takes the Bible from us, then we've lost the Gospel, the necessity of God's Word. Number two, the inerrancy of God's Word, which simply means the Bible doesn't contain any errors. In everything that it seeks to affirm, the Bible is true. What the Bible says, God says. Can God lie? The answer is no. Remember that, that song that we sing in Sunday school? Do you do this one in Northern Ireland? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. You ever sung that one? Hands up. It's heretical. It's not true. You know, in our church, we, we, I say to my Sunday school, you can't say there's nothing that... There are things God cannot do. You, 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 God cannot lie, can he? There are things that God... So in our Sunday school, we sing, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do except for those things that are inconsistent with his eternal, unchangeable (laughs) attributes. Boom, boom! No, we don't, but you get the picture. still a good song. What I'm saying is there are things God can't do, and God cannot lie. It is not within the character of God to lie. It is not within the character of God to deceive. He is the God of truth. So what does that mean? The Word of God is inerrant. The Word of God is true. It is utterly reliable. The Word of God is necessary. It is inerrant. Number three, the Word of God is authoritative, which simply means what the Bible says is what God says. Therefore, we have to obey it. If God says it, we do what it says. If God says it, that settles it. I remember saying once in a, in, a, in a church, you know, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I went to the back and this lady came across to me like, a, like an exocet missile and she said, that's wrong! You know, you shouldn't say that. I said, what did I say wrong? You know, it's always nice to be told that you're wrong, isn't it? 
She said, well, you said this morning, God says it, you, I believe it, that's it. You don't need the middle bit. God says it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. God says it, that settles it. Well, I think the middle bit does matter because we need to believe God's word, but be that as it may, it's authoritative. It's necessary, it's needed, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. The Bible tells us everything we need to know. There are lots of things we might want to know, and, and we might ask God to show us, but, but the things that we need to know for salvation, to live a holy life, to live to the glory of God, all of those things are contained in the Bible. And number three, the Bible, if I can use this word, is simple. The theologians have invented a word for this. They call it the Bible's perspicuity, which simply means the Bible is easy to understand. Trust theologians to come up with a word like perspicuity to describe simplicity. What it simply means is this. You don't need someone to interpret it to you. You can come as a child and read the Bible and understand it for yourself. Now, many of the missions simply seek to get the Bible into God's, into the hands of men and women because they know that once the Bible is released into the hands of men and women, God will use it to change their lives. So why am I talking like this about the Bible? Well, quite simply, what I want you to notice is, is, that, is that there are two things that go hand in hand. One is the authority of Scripture, and the other is the authority of preaching. You can't have one without the other. Why is it that the pulpits of our land are, are so ineffective in these days? Because they're often occupied by men and sometimes women who don't believe the Bible. Now, I, I have no authority to stand before you at all except the authority of Scripture. But if I've interpreted the Bible correctly, I can stand before you this morning and I can say to you this morning, thus says the Lord. And if what I say is true, then it is incumbent upon you to believe it. Just as we heard a, a moment ago from Lazarus, if God is doing something, and if his word is true, then we have to obey. There, you, you, you can never be neutral when you've heard God's word. You have to do something about it. Well, that's, that's, that's the introduction. You know why my sermons go on so long, don't you? Um, we're going to look at these three questions this morning. As, 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 as we think, we may only get through the first one, but we'll see how we go. The, the sermon is structured in, into three sections, and, and two of the questions are, are articulated, one of them is anticipated. The first question in verse 12, they're amazed and they're perplexed, and they say, what does this mean? What, what is happening here? You know, we're from the whole world, and we hear these men speaking in our native languages. These men are Galileans. They're not educated men. They're fishermen and tax collectors, and yet they're speaking in languages that they've never heard. And it's not just the general Greek language that kind of most people knew. It is our local dialects. What does it mean? And so Peter's first question, or first answer, is, is the answer to that question. Look at verse, 12, uh, verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Now just pause there for a moment. Can you see the, the amazing change that's happened in Peter? Can you, can you see the, the authority of Peter and the courage of Peter? Standing in front of him is a crowd. There are at least 3,000... Now, we, we can assume that not everybody was converted, so, so maybe there are 6,000 or 10,000. And amongst them are men and women who've cried out and called for the crucifixion of the Christ. And, and 50 days earlier, Peter has denied the Lord three times. He's been terrified of a little servant girl around a fire, and now he stands up in front of this huge crowd, and he declares, let me tell you, 
And in a few minutes he's going to say, and you crucified the Christ. And I imagine him pointing to the, you people out there. Can you see the courage? What's, what's the change? Well, the change is that he now has met the risen Christ. He knows Christ is alive and he's received the power of the Spirit. It's in the power of the Spirit that he proclaims. Let's carry on. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. So in other words, this isn't, this isn't a, a drinking party that's lasted all night. It's only early in the morning. It's the time of prayer. This is nothing to do with alcohol. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. We don't exactly know the dating of Joel. He's one of those prophets that, that we can't locate exactly. He's either at the beginning of the prophetic movement, 800 years before, or he's somewhere in the middle, 600 years before. And, and, and theologians and Bible scholars can't exactly put him exactly where, but at least 600 years ago, the prophet Joel had spoken about a great blessing that God would pour upon his people and upon the world. It was at a time of, of judgment. The locusts had come down, and if you've ever seen a locust storm, they'd, they'd obliterated the land, and he pronounces, this is a judgment on God, this is the day of the Lord, this is a day of judgment, but one day God's going to act in grace. And the great thing that God is going to do one day is he's going to pour out his Spirit on all people. And so something like 600 years before, the prophet Joel had made this prophecy, and the people of Israel had been waiting for it. They'd been waiting for the moment in time when the Spirit of God was poured out. And he says, this is what's happening now. When you see these people, when you hear it with your own ears, when you, you witness this miracle, this miraculous speaking in other languages, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Now, what does that mean? As you look at this prophecy, can I suggest to you, as we try and unpack it, verse 17 down to verse 21, he's saying three things. Number one, the last days have arrived. That's the first thing he's saying, the last days have arrived. Number two, the last day is near. The last day is near. And number three, today is the day of salvation. Those are the three things that he brings out from the prophet Joel. Those are the three things that Joel speaks about. First of all, the last days have arrived. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The Jewish people had been longing for the period when Messiah would come in all his glory and bring his kingdom, and they describe those as the last days. And what does he say? The last days have arrived. The moment that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and ascended to heaven, and the Spirit poured out, that is the beginning of the last days. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the last days. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Good. It's all, the people over here are so much enthusiastic compared with the guys over there. Have you noticed that? I don't know whether that's you know, to the right or the left, whatever it is, but, but there you go. Yes, we are living in the last days. Now, now, if you read all the books on prophecy, you know there are lots of people who, who love to talk about this and they see signs and, and there are some websites you can go on and they have a kind of a, a, a second coming index and they look for earthquakes and wars and rumours of wars and, 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 and sometimes people stand up and they say, you know, I can see these signs and, the, and we must be living in the last times. The last days are close. Listen to me. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. 
the last days began with the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 1, the, uh, uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews says, you know, in the past God spoke through prophets and, and in all sorts of ways, in amazing ways. In these last days, he's spoken by his Son, who he's made the heir of all things. The beginning of the cl- prophetic clock ticking down to the coming of Christ began with the first coming of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are in the last days. What are the marks of the last days? Well, two things. Number one, the abundance of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The mark of the last days in which we live is that the Spirit of God has been given to all God's people. Have a look at, uh, at verse 16. Uh, uh, sorry, verse 17. Oh, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 17. I will pour out my Spirit on all people, sons and daughters, young men and old men, servants, both men and women. There's a, there's a breathtaking abundance. There's an unprecedented universality. There's a glorious permanence. Something new has happened. A couple of people asked me about this yesterday. Are you saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't present in the Old Testament? Of course I'm not saying that. The Holy Spirit is present from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, and the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the deep. The Spirit was present at creation. And the Spirit was present in the Old Testament, coming on individuals and doing amazing things. The, present, the Spirit is present, if you look in the Psalms or in the book of Job, the, the Holy Spirit is present, bringing revitalization to the earth. Every time spring comes, every time there is life, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful verse in, in, in the book of uh, Job where it talks about the Spirit, I think in the authorised version, garnishing the world in springtime. When, when the flowers come and the, and the trees begin to blossom and the, and the leaves, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life is at work, garnishing. You know what a garnish is, don't you? I was at our anniversary, we, we're 36 years, Lazarus, not 40. We, we've got a little way to go, but one of our anniversaries, I, I said to my wife, what do you want me to do for our anniversary? She said, I'd like you to take me out for a meal. And just for once, just for once, will you take me to a posh restaurant? So I said, I don't know what a posh restaurant is. I'm a Bromley. What, what's a posh restaurant? She said, a posh restaurant is where they put a garnish on the meal. Yeah. So I took her to McDonald's. But um, <laughs> a garnish is that, that kind of added extra. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. He's always been there. He comes on individuals, particular people at particular times for particular ministries. The building of the tabernacle or, or, or conquering the enemies with, with Samson and, or, or with Saul or, or he anoints David for his kingship or he comes on the prophets. And can I say, I believe Old Testament believers were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I believe that their eyes were open. No man or woman has ever trusted in Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. And their faith was a faith that was looking forward. Just as our faith looks back, their faith looked forward to the cross. Everybody who gets to heaven will be saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And that includes you, and it includes David, and Abraham, and Isaac, and all of the guys that we meet. It's always faith, and you can't have faith unless God gives you a new heart. The Old Testament is sometimes described as the circumcision of the heart. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, being born again, don't you understand that, Nicodemus? You're a teacher of the law. You should understand that. Because it's not a new revelation. God gives new birth to people in the Old Testament, but he doesn't give the Spirit in its fullness. It's only in the New Testament that the Spirit comes to dwell within the heart of every believer. What is the sign of the, of, the, of the last days? It's the universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
And brothers and sisters this morning, we are recipients of the amazing grace of God in these last days. The Spirit of God dwells within the heart of every believer. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that glorious? Isn't that magnificent? You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the sign of the new covenant. So what's the sign of the last days? Well, the the universal abundance of the Spirit. But the second thing, of course, is the ministry of the mission of the church. That's the other sign. That's why the Spirit is given in the first place. Notice what will happen when the Spirit comes on all these people. They will prophesy, verse 17. Verse 18, my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit, and they will prophesy. And we're not talking here, I don't think specifically, of the gift of prophecy. I think we're talking about a word ministry. What happens when the Spirit comes? Men and women speak about Jesus. They can't help speaking about Jesus. What, what is the coming of the Spirit for? In order to create an a, a army of witnesses. To create a whole crowd of men and women, young and old, servants and, and so on. The whole of God's people to be witnesses sent into the world in the power of the Spirit. This morning you are part of God's army to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a friend who's a, a pastor in a large city in the north of, of England. And um, he told me this story. He and his wife, he's really got an evangelist heart. He and his wife go out every uh, Thursday afternoon and knock on doors. And uh, one day they came to a huge block of flats, like one of the places that Mez described last night. And they knocked on a series of doors. They got to the top and they knocked on a door and there was movement on the other side of the window, but nobody came to the door. He knocked a second time, still nobody came to the door. And so he said, I think we should go home now. And his wife said, no, no, I, I really think we should stay. And so they stayed, they knocked a third time, and he, he, the door was open, he said, by this, this young woman. Uh, he described her as the most miserable, unhappy-looking young woman he'd ever seen. Her face was, was bruised, she, she'd been crying, her makeup was running in, in streams down her cheeks, and when she turned slightly, it was obvious that she was heavily pregnant. And uh, to cut a long story short, after a, a, a little bit of suspicion, she invited them in and told her, her story. She and her boyfriend were living together. She was a drug addict, so was he. She'd been selling her body to get the drugs when she'd become pregnant. Her boyfriend had told her, you've got to get rid of the kid. When she'd said no, he'd beaten her and abandoned her. And as they'd knocked on the door, she was just on the point of taking an overdose to take her life. And he said, well, you mustn't do that. You mustn't do that. Jesus came to save sinners. And, And she said, but he can't save me, I'm too dirty. He couldn't save. That's impossible. He can save even someone like you. No, 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 not me, not me, never me. Well, they left her with an invitation to come to an evangelistic meeting they were holding, never expecting her to arrive. They they had this meeting, it was a Friday night or something, and he said, we we, we just started to preach, and suddenly this girl came in, there was a commotion, and she came and sat on the front row. He said, as I was preaching, I could see God doing something in her heart and in her life. And afterwards, she, she came to me, she said, are you saying... Are you actually saying that even someone like me, as, as unclean as I am, as dirty as my life is, I can be made clean by Jesus? He said, yes. And there and then she asked Christ to be her saviour, to come into her life and to transform her. It's not the end of the story. Three weeks later, there's a phone call at two o'clock in the morning, and it's this girl, and she's in the hospital, and she said, oh, I, I, I didn't know what else to do. My neighbour is an old bloke, and he's had a heart attack, and he's dying, and, and I, I, I'm trying to tell him about Jesus, but I'm not quite sure what to say. Will you come? And so he, he said, I turned up at the hospital. It's about half past two in the morning, and, and she's sitting there with this old boy with all the kind of tubes around him, and she's holding his hand with tears in her eyes. She looks, and she says, oh, here's the man of God. He'll tell you about Jesus. 
He said, I came and sat on the other side and, and I told him about Jesus and she told, told him about how Jesus had made her clean. And in the early hours of the morning, just before the sun came up, this old boy trusted in Christ like the thief on the cross. And then as the sun dawned, he was taken from this world into the presence of the Saviour. This is what my friend says. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the power of God. In one moment of time, in one moment of time, a life is saved from suicide and a soul is saved from hell and an evangelist is born. What happens when the Spirit comes? He puts the gospel in our hearts and he creates a whole army of evangelists. Maybe an evangelist with a small e. But that's the purpose of the, the last days. The only reason we're in the last days, the only reason that the last days haven't come to an end is because there's a lost world out there that needs to hear the gospel. The whole purpose of Pentecost is to send the church out in mission to the ends of the earth. So first, first thing that Peter says and first thing that uh, the prophet says is that we're in the last days. Number two, here's the second thing, the last day is near. The last days are come, the last day is near. Look at verse 19, I will show you wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, now theologians argue about this interminably, uh, and, and they have all sorts of ideas, and you probably have all sorts of ideas, so I'll tell you what it really means. Um, <laughs> please, please, you know, I'm not trying to be arrogant, obviously. Um, there is a gap in my understanding between the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19. I'm sure you've heard this, this, this illustration before. What he's saying is we've come to the last days and therefore because the last days have arrived, it means that the prophetic clock is ticking. God's timetable is moving forward. What does that mean? Well, it means that the last day is certain. And, and at some point, which God hasn't told us, the last day will come. The last days are a period of time. The last day is a point in time. It's a moment in time. And, and, and I, this is the way I've heard it under, explained, and I, I think it's helpful to do that. Between verse 18 and verse 19, it's as if there's a gap. Okay, And, and this, this is an illustration sometimes used. Imagine that you're walking along the mountains and you see two mountains. And often if you, if you look at two mountain peaks, it looks as if they're close together, doesn't it? And you look at them and it looks as if they touch one another. And then you get to the top of the first mountain peak and you realise there's a valley in between. Have you, have you ever had that experience? Do you climb mountains? In, have you got mountains in Ireland? Yeah, I expect so. And, and, and then you see the other peak. Now, now it's almost as if what, what you've got is the first peak, the coming of Christ, his death, resurrection, ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that's the first peak. And now we descend into the valley... And we're looking for the second peak. The second peak is the parousia, the return of Christ, the moment when he returns in glory. And we're living in the valley. How long is that valley going to be? Well, it's been 2,000 years so far. And you might say that's a very big valley. Well, it might be a big valley for us, but not from God's timetable. Now, Peter anticipates that. He says in, that there will be people who will say, well, where is the coming? You know, it's been a long, long time. Then he says, but don't you realise that a 1,000 years with the Lord is just a day? 2,000 years is like Monday afternoon as far as God is concerned. So however long that period is before the coming of Christ, that's the period we're in. But what does it mean? It means that the clock is ticking and Jesus will definitely come back. He will return in glory. He will return in majesty on what is described as the glorious day of the Lord. Now as believers, we're waiting for the coming of Jesus, aren't we? Oh... There you go. Now, one of the things that marks out the New Testament believers is that they lived in the light of his coming. 
They, they were constantly talking about his return. One of Paul's first letters is the letter of Thessalonians, and he mentions the return of Christ at the end of every chapter, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and the beginning of chapter 5. What is a Christian? Someone who has turned from idols to l- serve the living God and to wait for his Son from glory. You know, what does Jesus say to his disciples? I, you know, I'm going, I'm coming back. He ascends to heaven and the angels say, this Jesus who you see, he's coming in the same way. Have you ever read the last chapter of the book of the Bible? I'm sure you have, Revelation chapter 22. It contains one promise three times. What's the promise? I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I'm almost there. Could it happen in our lifetime? Of course it could. Whatever your prophetic understanding, we are looking for the coming of Jesus. And for us as believers, it's wonderful, isn't it? He's going to raise us to meet him in the air. And if believers have gone ahead and they're they're in the grave, he'll raise them and we'll meet the Lord in the air. We'll be transformed in a moment of an eye. We'll be changed. New resurrection bodies, isn't that exciting? I was shaking hands with somebody on, on, on Sunday morning at the Baptist church. and I love a nice hard handshake, don't you? No, I can't stand a wet fish, so I, I'm shaking hands on this poor old lady. She jumped to Mars. She said, rheumatism, rheumatism. <laughs> I should know by now, shouldn't I? <laughs> Listen to me. A new resurrection body, no rheumatism, no arthritis, no spectacles. I shall have a, a head of, of, of dark black hair. You won't recognize me. We're waiting for the great and glorious day of the Lord. We're also waiting for the great and terrible day of the Lord, because it will be terrible. Keep your finger there and turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 6. John Calvin said of these verses at the end of chapter 6 that they are the, maybe the most terrifying verses in the whole Bible. And he might be right there. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15, speaking of that terrible day. Revelation 6 verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals and the rich and the mighty and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. What he's doing there is describing the whole of the human race in in terms that have been understood in the first century. Kings and generals and princes and slaves, everybody, every human being, everyone who is outside of Christ. And they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The terrifying nature of God's judgment is a reality in in the whole of the Bible. It's not just confined to the Old Testament. If anything, it's notched, it's notched up, it's kind of ratcheted up in the New Testament. The New Testament reminds us that that day will be a day of terrible judgment when the wrath of God will be poured out. And that day is coming. So what should that be? That should be a spur for us to take the gospel to lost people. It should be a spur for us to rejoice in our salvation. And it should be a warning to you this morning if you're not saved. Because I can't assume that anybody sitting in this building today is a believer. You may have been baptized as a child or as an adult. You may teach in Sunday school. You may be a deacon. You may be an elder. You may even be a pastor. And you may still be unsaved. You need to be ready for the great and terrible day of the Lord. We are in the last days. What does that mean? The last day will come. It will come in glory, and it will come with terror when it arrives. Come back to Acts chapter 2. What does this prophecy mean? What What does the day of Pentecost mean? Well, number one, we're in the last days. Number two, the last day is coming. Number three, today is the day of salvation. Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls 
on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me just close this morning by asking you that question, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready for that day? Uh, remember what I said at the beginning, this, this is street preaching. This is, this is gospel preaching. Peter's not pulling his punches here. He's not kind of saying, well, I've got this nice message I want to tell you about. He, he's he's going to go on to say, you know, th- th- this has all happened because of Jesus. And, and, and your eternal destiny depends on your response to Jesus Christ. What is your response? On Sunday evening, I, I mentioned that when I was studying theology at Cambridge, um, one of the things that I did know who, was who the enemy was. Liberal theologians, most of my professors were liberals, not quite all, but most of my professors were liberals, and they would, they would teach things like, well, of course, Jesus is not the only way to God, there are many ways to God, that Jesus is not unique, and uh, God will not judge anybody, and there's no such place as hell. I remember one of them saying, well, of course, I believe in hell theoretically, but I don't think anyone will be there. And, 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 and even if there is a hell, well, it's more like purgatory where you get punished for a while and then in the end, I remember one of my professors clearly saying, in the end, even the devil will be saved. Even the devil will go to heaven in the end because that's, you know, God's very kind and very nice and very gentle. It'll all be okay in the end. But at least I knew that they were liberals. At least I knew that they didn't believe the gospel and I knew that I, I trusted the Bible. And if the Bible said it, that settled it, as we, we said right at the beginning. Today, the remarkable and alarming thing is that there are men and women who claim to be evangelical and yet in their books deny those fundamental things. On my bookcase, I have what I call my poison section, which contains books written by these guys because as a pastor, I need to know what they're saying. And I have books written by men who who claim to be Bible-believing men who deny that Christ is the only way to God. There are lots of ways to God. Jesus is one of them. He may be the best one, but people don't need to know about Jesus to be saved. And, and, and there is no hell. And there is no judgment. And, and in the end, everybody will be saved. Brothers and sisters, that's not what the Scriptures teach. I would love to believe with all my heart in universal salvation. Wouldn't you? I'd love to believe, but I can't. My conscience is submissive to the Word of God. And I must believe the Scriptures. So what do I preach and what do you preach and what do we proclaim to a lost world? Today is the day of salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you ready to meet your God? And if you are a believer, are you filled with a passion for lost people? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have a great and glorious hope that Jesus is coming back and he's coming for his people and he's coming to take us to be with him and uh, there will be no more pain or sickness or sorrow. We thank you for the glory of a new heavens and a new earth in which uh, in resurrection bodies we will live with you forever and ever. Lord, it is just magnificent and it's glorious and it's wonderful. And yet we're also aware that around us there is a lost world. And the only reason that that, that the Lord has not returned yet is that the gospel may go even further and that more people might be saved. Lord, we pray that we may not be the the, the most selfish people on earth who who look inwardly at their their own lives and, and the blessings they have and forget that around us there are men and women without God and without hope in the world. Lord, help us to be faithful to the truth. Help our consciences, our minds, our hearts, our wills to be submissive to the truth of the word of God. And where your word takes us, help us to be obedient to it. Oh God, grant us this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.